Don't move or I'll cut it. Jenny, what are you doing? I'm bleeding. Oh, my God, I'm bleeding. And I can help you. Don't let me die, Jenny. I want to know what you've done with Amy. But I don't know where she is. What are you saying? She wants to know where her brat is. So why don't you tell her before you get your throat cut? But I don't know where she is. I don't know where she is. I don't. Who are you talking to? She's with my father. Your father? What are you saying? Your father is dead! That was Lolita Davidovich, John Lithgow, and John Lithgow, in a tense scene from Brian De Palma's classic thriller, Raising Cain, a movie that now exists in two distinct forms, the original theatrical release and the director's cut, which, oddly enough, wasn't actually assembled by the film's director. Hello and welcome to episode 110 of the Occasional Film Podcast, the occasional companion podcast to the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. I'm the blog's editor, John Gaspard. In today's episode, we're going to talk to the man who created a recut of Raising Cain, making a version that Brian De Palma prefers over the original edit and which De Palma himself has dubbed the director's cut. That work was completed by Dutch filmmaker Piet Gelderblom, a huge fan of De Palma's work. Piet brought a filmmaker's eye and an editor's sensibility to restructuring Raising Cain so that it would match more closely with what De Palma originally intended. Before we got into how that all came about, though, we first look back at Pete's history with Brian De Palma movies. What was the very first Brian De Palma movie you, you remember seeing? Ooh, that's difficult. I was probably a little too young for it, <laughs> but it may have been Sisters. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah, you probably were too young. <laughs> yeah, but I think uh, the first thing I remember from Brian De Palma was that he was in television uh, because uh, Body Double had just come out. Okay. And I saw the clips from Body Double, and I thought, wow, that would be something I would like to see. But I was too young for it. I, yeah. I wasn't able to to go into the cinema and check it out. But um, I immediately I made a mental note and I think uh, the name just stuck with me and I, I started to check him out. And whenever there was something on tele- television uh, by him mm-hmm. on the BBC or whatever, I would uh, I would definitely see it. So it might have been Sisters. It might have been, um, yeah, maybe Dress to Kill or Blowout. I'm, I'm not really sure. Okay. Well, my point of entry was Phantom of the Paradise when it was mm. first released in cinema, and I'd never seen anything like it. And then um, I had to follow up with uh, this guy, Brian De Palma, to see what he was going to do. And the next thing I remember seeing was Carrie uh, wow. and uh, really loving that and loving the... Uh, I, I just remember it was showing maybe a couple of years later at a university film society, and I wasn't seeing it, but I was walking by. I could hear what was going on, and I said to a friend, let's stand here for just a second. They're, they're about to scream because the hand was about to come up out of the grave at the end. <laughs> and... It was so much fun to just know that was going to happen. Uh, and then years later to read about you know how Paul Hirsch came up with that and the music choice that he made and all that. So yeah. uh, do you have, of, of everything he's done, is there a, a favorite De Palma film? Yeah, I think Blowout is my favorite. Okay. Um, it seems to be the one that combines all of his best qualities, you know, combining hot and cold and his formal expertise and 
uh, his his weird plotting and 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 humor. Um, yeah, all of that. Yeah, he does have both weird plotting and and um, very devious humor in all of those. <laughs> he does. I, yeah, I, I am a. Um, I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but I do. Whenever it's on, I I can't help but watch The Fury just because it's it's a filmmaker working so hard <laughs> to make this work, um, and <laughs> the cast is great, and they're all giving it their all, and it, you know the story doesn't really hold up, but he is just throwing so much at it to make it work that I, I appreciate that. And and one that that's I... A, that's a good summation, actually. Yeah. It, it yeah. doesn't really work, but it's just so much fun. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and one that I, I have trouble finding that I just love and that I just looked up, as I mentioned, I was just looking to see the order of things and was surprised that um, Obsession came before Carrie. I thought Obsession came after Carrie. Uh, and that's his first time working with John Lithgow. And it's from a Paul Schrader script and apparently the last yeah. third of the movie they didn't even shoot there's a whole nother act they didn't even shoot and yeah i think i think paul schrader is still a little pissed off about that yes maybe more than a little <laughs> maybe more than a little yeah. Yeah. yes well and with every right but i think what De Palma ended up doing with that movie particularly when you read in lithgow's book about the difficulty he had working with cliff robertson and how difficult robertson was and how he sabotaged every scene he was in to make sure that he would get the close-ups which is such a weird thing to, to want to do but i guess that's that's what he did yeah it's with that uh, herman score it's just it's it's just such a lovely, lovely movie that uh, I wish I could find it more often, but it is hard to come across. So what did you think of Raising Cain the first time you saw it? Well, I, I know it like the day it was yesterday because I, I discovered him while he was in the middle of his career. And so a lot of the films that I saw were actually older films of his. And I really liked his thrillers and the, the films that really carried his own signature. And at the time, he had been doing some other kind of pictures. I think Wise Guys was one of them. Mm -hmm. I didn't even bother to see that. And, and of course, Bonfire of the Vanities, which was <laughs> not exactly praised. It, it wasn't, but it, it's not horrible. It really isn't horrible. I rewatched it recently and... It's got some wonderful stuff in it. Mm, yeah, they they always do. All of his films uh, have wonderful stuff. But anyway, it was pretty clear from the promotional materials and, and interviews that he was doing something with Raising Kane, which sort of pointed towards the fact that he was starting to to go back to the source. You know, he was going mm -hmm. to do his own thing again. And I was completely ready for it yeah. and i um i had a girlfriend at the time and i must have you know uh, been enthusing a lot of, uh, about it and she went with uh, me when it was out in the cinemas and i liked the movie very much because i was a die hard rabbit fan but <laughs> my girlfriend she was sitting next to me and it could feel like she wasn't liking it <laughs> and after i think Already about four minutes in, she she turned to me and said, what kind of crazy film is this? And, you know, this was also in uh, in the cinema that we, we saw it. You know, this was the general consensus. It was like, what kind of crazy thing is this? Now, would that have been the car scene with Carter and the and the woman and Kane shows up in the window? It's 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 going off the rails really soon in the original version. And yes. I was I was ready for that because I was a De Palma fan. Mm -hmm. uh, so I dug it. But I also could completely understand why uh, the casual viewer would have <laughs> lots of problems with it. Yes. 
so that that stuck with me. Uh, of course, uh, later I found out that De Palma wasn't really uh, happy with how the film uh, turned out. And when I, you know, sort of guessed what he originally had in mind, mm -hmm. I thought, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, that would work much better, actually. Yes, it's much more in keeping with, with Dress to Kill and uh, as an homage to Psycho, where you start the story one way. Mm. We don't learn who the villain is until, until much later. Yeah. With that in mind and with enjoying the film, what was it that inspired the recut? Well, I was hosting a website uh, with a forum on it uh, mm -hmm. that had a lot of uh, De Palma fans uh, who... Um, who, who actually uh, made the jump from another forum that was specifically out about the De Palma. Uh, so there were a lot of De Palma fans there and they were uh, discussing lots of, lots of stuff. And at a certain moment, there was this guy, a French guy, Laurent Fachot. Um, he was talking about an interview book he was doing with uh, Brian De Palma. And yeah, he must have mentioned Raising Cain and that uh, he had said in the interview that he wasn't happy with it. And that immediately piqued my interest. And I asked Laurent, what was it about the film that he doesn't like? And Laurent said, well, he originally wanted to start uh, with the story of the woman, of the mm -hmm. wife. Uh, so that was the point where I thought, oh, yeah, of course. Then that probably means that he would start in the clock store. Mm -hmm. uh, I immediately, immediately thought. So I checked out my DVD and I tried, you know, the DVDs have chapters. So I tried to reorder the chapters to see how that movie must have played originally. And I couldn't really get it to work. But mm -hmm. I still thought there might be a better film in this than was originally released. Yeah. So with that in mind, how'd you make that happen? Well, I left it alone for a few years. And at a certain moment, I guess it it bugged me. The, the idea kept sticking in my mind. And I thought, well, why don't I just try it? Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I ripped, you know, the, the, the DVD. Mm -hmm. uh, and I am a, a director and editor, so uh, I know how to edit. And I started asking around, and uh, Jeff Songs, who has the website uh, De Palma a la Mode, he knows a lot of stuff about De Palma because he keeps a uh, Palma a la Mode. It's a new site. And he actually had an old draft of the screenplay, and it was called Father's Day at that time. And he was willing to send it over to me. So I was able to read that and indeed the movie started the way i imagined it in, mm -hmm. in the shop but but there was a there were a lot of things uh, different back then because the the screenplay wasn't completed there were some really wild things in there that he just let go because it was too wild or he went into another direction but basically it laid out how you know, the chronological order used to be it wasn't actually chronological right he made, he made it chronological because yeah, as I heard it, he started to second guess his own creative feelings when uh, the movie was tested and and people had a problem with it and he started to mess around some more in the in the editing and he he changed everything to a chronological order. At the time he thought, well, this is probably better because then we get to the action really soon. <laughs> we do, yeah. And yeah, we do. So that is how it was released, but of course in interviews after that he has moaned a lot about the fact that he he doesn't really like the film as it was uh, released and that it should have been different. So, yeah. You know, it's before chatting with you, I sat down and rewatched both versions and took notes to try to figure out what the order 
was. And what throws it off for me a little bit is the opening shot in the theatrical cut of the park from high up is very much a De Palma opening shot. It's, you know, very close to what he did in Carrie. Whereas the opening shot in the clock store is not really a De Palma shot. It's a, a little mundane. It's a wide shot. It's interesting, you know, that Jenny walks up and sees herself in the heart-shaped camera and all that. But it, it didn't but feel... Thematically, it encapsulates the whole movie. But, but in a different way than the original did. Yeah, Exa Exactly. And then as I was going through, um, and I'm sure you ran into this, it's... Regardless of whether it's the recut or the theatrical one, it's, you know, it's a flashback. No, it's a dream sequence with a flashback built into it. Mm. And so it isn't until you get out of the dream sequence that you realize, oh, that was a dream sequence. But then in your mind, you're going, well, then was the flashback real or is that part of the dream? <laughs> and then they've added in narration as part of the flashback to help explain it, which I'm guessing was done in post. And so now they have a narration thing. So they have to keep that up. And then when they switch it around, when you did the version that, you know, what was closer to what he wanted, it's still, it's a bit wonky, you know, regardless of how, whether you're chronological or not, an audience has to go, okay, she's going to the hotel. Is this a dream? Must be a dream because she's walking into the room and she doesn't have a key. That's the only clue, I think, that it's really a dream. And then obviously it's a dream because she's killed and wakes up. And then you have the repeat of the thing of the gift and all that. So regardless of the order of everything before that, that whole section, I think, is always going to throw an audience off. You're right. But the wonkiness, if you call it that, mm -hmm. uh, it, it is intentional. Mm -hmm. What he wanted to do, and it, this has been stated, he has stated this in interviews, is, you know, normally with a with a kind of mystery, police mystery, there is something going on and you don't know quite what. And then the detectives, they start to ask around and you slowly assemble information and, you know, it, it becomes clearer and clearer to what actually has happened. And he really wanted this time to fuck with his audience, of course, because that's what the Palma does. Yes. And he said, what if all the information the audience is getting is either a dream, it has never happened, or <laughs> right. you, don't, you don't know if it's happened, or, you know, it's an unreliable uh, narrator. Yep. That was actually the game. And he's so he's so good at that. He's he's really good at it. But but of course you also need to get the audience so far that they're willing to go with you, right? Uh, because it's a very manipulative way of of telling a story. Uh, yes. And some some people don't like that. Uh, so that's a very thin line that he was walking. And I think in the editing he got cold feet. Is that the expression? Yeah. Or, Yep. Yeah, he thought, well, maybe I went a little too far here and maybe I should do it a little differently, help them out and make make everything chronological. And and it yeah, it fixed it may have fixed some things, but it created uh, other big problems. It, the the flow isn't really right and yeah, things like that. It wasn't how he originally imagined it. And I think in a way he tested it and it, it tested bad the film. And after that, they changed it around. And I think probably some of those changes were good mm -hmm. uh, because he also shortened some bits, which were maybe a little too wild, judging okay. from the screenplay that I've read. But I think the the, the changing the order was was a bad decision, and I think he he thinks that too. Because as you know, he he actually likes the version that I did, and it's yeah. now the director's cut. Yeah. So so yeah, he, he fixed some things, and he he made other things problematic. It's also it's really funny. Uh, you mentioned Paul Hirsch earlier. 
Yes. Uh, and he's, of, of course, uh, De Palma's editor. He originally wasn't the editor on Raising Cain. Uh, it was someone else or two other people. And it didn't really work out um, as De Palma wanted it, uh, it says in the book. Yeah. Um, he was struggling with it uh, uh, in the editing suite. And at a certain moment, yeah, I guess he fired the the previous editor and he uh, made sure that uh, Paul came in. And Paul, he read the screenplay on the airplane and he didn't get it. <laughs> That's a bad like, sign. That's a bad sign for like, editor. What? <laughs> and, he, and he read it again, uh, still on the same flight, still didn't get it. He went to the Palma, he asked about it, still did not get it. And while he was editing... <laughs> Uh, I'm afraid to say he, he never really got it. Mm -hmm. And that was that was an eye opener for me. And I realized that pretty late on because that book came out, you know, uh, sometime after the director's cut had come out on Blu-ray. He was also asked, uh, I think, in the auditorium, uh, he was giving a Q&A somewhere and somebody mentioned the director's cut and that it was edited by some random guy. <laughs> <laughs> and then he actually preferred uh, that version, and then Paul here said, "Well, he should have he should have gotten that guy to edit the movie." <laughs> well, in a roundabout way, I did it. Uh, but uh, don't get me wrong, though, uh, Paul Hirsch is a brilliant editor. Oh, he is indeed. He, he must have uh, done uh, a lot of things right as well, because I think the 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 finale of the film, uh, which all plays in slow mo, yeah, I think uh, he edited that. Uh, all over again. Yeah. And uh, that works brilliantly. As it, it, it does. You know, if you remember what he did at the end of Carrie and how he fixed the split screen issues mm. at the end of Carrie and made all that work, the montage he put together in the middle of Phantom of the Paradise, even the, the closing credit montage of Phantom of the Paradise in which you re recap all the characters. That's a really good editor. Oh, yeah. So I understand that for legal reasons in putting together your recut uh, and making it you know, what became the official director's recut. You had to use all the elements from the theatrical cut. You had to use all of them. And you couldn't, obviously couldn't add anything because you didn't have access to that. Was that tricky where you had to use absolutely everything? Um, no, it wasn't. It wasn't tricky. I was just uh, lucky, I guess. It was also uh, requested because when I had made my own recut and they wanted to, the Palmer wanted to be part of the Blu-ray, the lawyers of Universal also requested that a recut of, of the film would only be possible if it wouldn't add something and wouldn't take something away. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I was just lucky that it works like that. Uh, the only thing I did was change uh, the order around. And there's a little change in the overall length of the film. That's because I repeat something and right. uh, I make some dissolves a little differently. But, and that uh, repetition is really helpful mm. uh, to, to pull us back to where we need to be on, on the timeline there. If, if you just went, if you didn't have the scene with Jenny and her friend played by Mal Harris, um, I think you would get a little disassociated as to, okay, is this the same time they're in the park? Yeah, I think um, you're absolutely right. And and this must have been, this is one of those things where an editor can help a director to achieve what he wants. Mm -hmm. Because I can, I can imagine that they tried out that order in the editing suite and that they thought it wouldn't work because it's, it's too jarring. It's too, you don't know where you are in the story and yeah. whatever. And a little repetition that I added really helps to get the viewer, uh, you know, it, it is still jarring, but immediately after that, oh, the audience realizes, okay, it's it's this moment, right? Yeah. And then they yeah. get along with it again. And, and I'm wondering yeah. if today's audiences, this is, I don't know how many years later since 
that came out, uh, his version and your version, if if audiences today might be a little more keyed into time jumps than they were back then. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Because since then, of course, we've had movies like Memento and Pulp Fiction, which mm-hmm. are, you know, messing around with uh, traditional ways that, that stories are told. I think De Palma, uh, it was part of the problem that y- you have this huge flashback. And at a certain moment, the movie goes on again after mm-hmm. that flashback. But it's such a long flashback that uh, De Palma thought, well, maybe the audience will never understand <laughs> Uh, that a flashback can last that long. Mm-hmm. So let's not do it. <laughs> and I think, you know, the, the movies that I mentioned and other ones uh, might have helped to um, to educate the viewer to the modern age where this is not much of a problem anymore. You know, pe- right. you, you can, um, you can um, take people to amazingly difficult uh, things. You know, you just watch uh, what Christopher Nolan uh, yeah. has been doing. And they are willing to to go along as long as you entertain them yeah. and reward them. And in, in comparing the two versions as closely as I did, you know, uh, this week, your version, although it's, you know, you said just a tiny bit longer, actually seems faster because once Carter gets on that Carter train where he has to go all the way to the end, that's happening more in the middle of the movie instead of the beginning. It just gives it a propulsion that the theatrical version doesn't because it starts with Carter and then it goes to Jenny for a big chunk and then it's back to Carter. And you're getting a little surprise of, oh, John Lithgow is evil in the first five minutes, but it's John Lithgow. So how big a surprise is that going to be in a De Palma film? Really, I don't think he's he's ever been in a De Palma film where he wasn't ultimately evil. (laughs) Well, it's true. And then switching it so that we're doing the psycho dress to kill, following a character, and then she suddenly dies. But then De Palma's brilliant touch of, no, she's not dead, when Carter sees her on the TV screen, is a huge shock. And it's, I think, more of a shock in your version than in the original one, just because of the, the mm. spacing of things. There, There is still, though, in both versions, my favorite moment. And it's one of those things where I wish I could go back and see it again for the first time. When the elevator door opens and you see Dr. Nix coming forward with the baby and you realize he is alive. <laughs> yeah. That isn't a, a manifestation of Carter's brain. He's really there. And it's <laughs> it's we've been toyed with all the way up to that point with obviously he's not there because he's never in the same shot with anybody else. He's doing the same tricks that he does with Kane. Um, it's just such a, a delightfully De Palma moment. Uh, that and the appearance of, of uh, Jenny on the TV screen are just great moments that only work because the filmmaker has brought us up to them so skillfully. Yeah, right. And and you're right. You know, that is the, the original flow as it was intended. It's, it's also funny to me that a lot of people uh, at the time didn't really care for the story of Jenny mm-hmm. because, you know, you were already on this track of John Lithgow uh, doing his crazy thing. Mm-hmm. And then you all of a sudden get a love story. Yeah. I loved it at the time, but a lot of people, and it didn't just well so it's kind of brilliant that if you start with it it really gets the attention that it deserves and mm-hmm. and people actually really like it and then uh as soon as um uh john lithgow does his thing it, it, you like you say it, it becomes really propulsive the whole narrative goes toward that ending yeah it's it's just great and of course we can't uh Tap mentioned his lovely play on palma's lovely play on psycho's ending scene with simon oakland explaining everything and I have Frances mm-hmm. Sternhagen uh, do that same thing in her own way. And then, of course, that classic De Palma shot, taking us all the way through the building for no other reason than the fact that he can, in fact, do that. <laughs> and just thinking about watching it, thinking, 
wow, they she's timed exactly where she goes off kilter and they have to pull her back and it all fits with the lines as she's saying them. When he does that sort of thing like he did at the beginning of Bonfire, it's just so much fun to watch him do it because you realize not a lot of filmmakers can pull that off and keep the pacing right and, and make it work. It's just, it's a great moment. Yeah, yeah. He's he's such a uh, devious master storyteller. And, and then, let's just jump ahead, you make the cut and you heard that he loved it. How did that happen? Well, I think a year after I, I put it online, I put it online on IndieWire. I know Mets Allerside's a film critic, and uh, I, I talked about what I was doing. And I thought, uh, wouldn't it be great if I make a, a video essay about my findings? And then uh, it was posted on IndieWire. And he said, well, yeah, actually, I, th I think it should be the whole version should be on IndieWire. And that's, of course, you know, in terms of rights, we were thinking like, can, can we, can we do that? Actually, you can't, you, you can't really, but we decided to do so anyway. And then, and, and then put up that it was for educational purposes. Mm -hmm. And we just decided that whenever universal lawyers would call, like, what are you doing? Get this thing off. Mm -hmm. We would get it off, but it was on there. And it, I believe it's still visible actually. Mm -hmm. um, they don't really care for Raising Cain at Universal. But uh, Palma, he found it. And uh, about a year later, I started reading in interviews, I think there were at least five, that he actually preferred this version over his own version. And that was, of course, already uh, completely wonderful. Much later, I think about five years later, the, the Blu-ray was announced by Shout, Shout Factory. And all of a sudden, Jeff Songs from the Palma Alamod, I mentioned it before, he got an email from the Palma. He said, uh, you know, I, I just watched uh, a Raising Cane record and I think it's great. It, it succeeds in things that, you know, we couldn't get right uh, the first time. It's what I originally wanted the movie to be. And he thought it should be part of the, of the Blu-ray. And if I, I he said, uh, maybe you can make this happen for me. He asked, he, he asked uh, Jeff, and if I have to call somebody, then I will. So that is how it happened. Uh, it was a big surprise for Shout Factory. I think they were already... <laughs> they already finished the blu-ray <laughs> and then all of a sudden they got this mm -hmm. call from the director like okay yeah well you have to add something <laughs> there's there's now going to be a second disc yeah <laughs> yes and i never talked to the palma but he basically gave me free reign he said okay the, this i like this version this record and it should be on the blu-ray so shout factory asked me to make that happen and we used the original master uh, the same master as as was on the on the on the normal Blu-ray, mm -hmm. uh, we actually re-edited that according to uh, the recut that I had made, and and put it on the Blu-ray. That's an incredible story. That's <laughs> what a, what a thrill for you, and what a vindication for him that somebody somewhere because of today's technology, you know, it'd be like if you got a, a letter from. Uh, Orson Welles saying, thank you so much for restoring Magnificent Ambersons. That's exactly the movie <laughs> I set out to make. Yeah, yeah. well, it, it's still uh, it's still a little bit of, of a dream when I think uh, think about it. It's really great. And I, I know I've emailed him after that to try to get, you know, some, some correspondence about it. But he's not the kind of guy who <laughs> answers those emails. But I do know, actually, from Laurent, Laurent Fauchot, who made, who made the interview book, that he's very happy with uh, the Blu-ray as it is right now. He feels it is sort of, um, it has validated his film uh, again. So that is, um, that feels great. Pete really has validated De Palma's vision for Raising Cain. 
which is one of my favorite De Palma films, and I prefer Pete's version to the original. You can find both versions, the original and Pete's recut, on the Shout Factory Blu-ray of Raising Cain. Thanks to Pete Gelderblom for taking the time to chat with me about his phenomenal work on restoring Raising Cain to the form that Brian De Palma originally intended. Check out the show notes for Pete's website, a few clips, and a link to a great page all about the Raising Cain recut. Did you enjoy this interview? You can find lots more just like it on the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. Check out the link in the show notes. Plus, more interviews can be found in my books, Fast, Cheap, and Under Control, Lessons Learned from the Greatest Low-Budget Movies of All Time, and its companion book of interviews with screenwriters called Fast, Cheap, and Written That Way. Both books can be found on Amazon. And while you're there, check out my mystery series of novels about magician Eli Marks and the scrapes he gets into. The entire series, starting with The Ambitious Card, can be found on Amazon in paperback, hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. And if you haven't done it already, check out the podcast companion to the books, Behind the Page, the Eli Marks Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's it for episode 110 of the Occasional Film Podcast, which was produced at Grass Lake Studios. Original music composed and performed by Andy Morantz. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you occasionally.